Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. Australia's security agencies, ASIO and the Australian Signals Directorate, have long been warning about the fact that Australians, not people from overseas, are individuals that need to be looked at because of a rise in extremist uh, ideologies and right-wing extremism. Terrorism is no longer associated with merely uh, sloppy jihadists or global jihadists, people who believe in the sort of ideologies of ISIS and and Al-Qaeda. The challenge for us in Australia and also globally is to understand that these uh, groups, terrorist organisations, illicit networks, call them what you will, are interconnected. In order to explain this a bit more and explain why right-wing extremism is a real danger, I've got an expert on the line today. Uh, Molly Schultzberg is a senior intelligence analyst with the world-renowned SUPAN group, SUPAN Centre, and she's going to take us through what right-wing extremism is, how it manifests itself, what the real risks are, and who is in danger of being radicalised by people who are not really nice. They're actually quite nasty. Molly, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, one of the problems with any conversation uh, about terrorism or, or extreme political violence that causes terror, if I can put it that way, is definition. Um, where does right-wing extremism sit in the continuum of all of the kinds of terror threats that we hear about today? Absolutely. I think this is a, a crucial point uh, to start at. And we've seen the debate about definitions for the Salafi jihadist terrorism and for other forms of terrorism really cause confusion in how to combat um, violent political movements. And so the right-wing extremism or the racially and ethnically motivated terrorism, as it's often labeled here in the United States, uh, this movement is not uniform, um, but those that make up the movement often adhere to some form of hatred towards minority or an outgroup. And this includes anti-Semitism, xenophobia, Islamophobia. But as I mentioned, the milieu of ideologues, individuals, and groups that organize both online and offline and are part of, of this, this broad movement of right-wing extremism, they are have overlapping but also fluid ideologies. So for example, although they might in the core adhere to some form of of, of uh, violent racist ideology. They could also espouse hatred towards uh, women uh, or people who identify as LGBTQ+, um, and they can be anti-abortion and all of these things. But I think the, the key point here is that they are uh, doing politically motivated violence, uh, and these violence, violent attacks can range from hate crimes to organized terrorist attacks. If we can take um, the the point you made earlier about the, the issues of, of, of racism um, 
anti-Semitism and the issue of, I guess if we can use an example, um, way back in after the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan came up, came along in the US. Yes. It was a direct, it was a direct a reaction um, by those who believed that uh, the black population of the United States had a lower status than the white population of the United States. And the Ku Klux Klan came and went, depending on the situation uh, in uh, in the US. Is this the kind of thing we're talking about in today's right-wing extremism, or is it something completely different and more insidious? I think that the the ideology and the narratives uh, have existed for a long time, and I think what you're pointing out is 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 a for is a is part of the right-wing extremist movement, which is white supremacy extremism, which is actually makes up. Um, the most lethal and most violence-oriented groups in in America adhere to white supremacy extremism. But I think that two crucial points um, that I would like to make on how this uh, movement and this ideology is different today than it was uh, a couple of decades ago, or even further back, uh, like right after the Civil War. So the first one is that it is today it is the biggest terrorism threat to the United States. And it is a rising threat in Europe and elsewhere, like Australia. Um, for example, um, the UN has noted that over the last five years, there's been a 320% increase in terrorist attacks by groups or individuals who are affiliated with, with some form of right-wing extremist movement or ideology. Um, and in the US alone, between 2001 and 2016, over 70% of lethal violent extremist incidents were caused by individuals adhering to some form of far-right uh, violent extremist ideology. And you can compare that with, um, you know, a little uh, under 30% um, of attacks during the same time period were committed by Salafi jihadists. So to your point in the beginning, there is this notion that Salafi jihadist terrorism or global jihadi terrorism is the imminent, most important, um, potent terrorism threat to the Western world. That's no longer the case. And it hasn't been the case for a long time in the U.S. Um, similarly, in, in the U.K., you know, the, the head of the British Counterterrorism Police said uh, last year that right wing extremism poses the fastest growing terrorism threat in the U.K. So first, I think we need to realize that this threat is very potent and it's here. Um, and, and secondly, building off that point, why this threat is so lethal and why we need to start paying attention and how it has evolved since the early days is that we see a worrying trend in the similarities how white supremacists are organizing today to how jihadis were organizing in the lead up to 9-11 and beyond. So in short, they're taking, you know, an already well-developed and well-tested terrorism playbook and, and more or less copying it. And a key part of this playbook is the transnational movement. And that means that although there might be domestic groups and individuals in, say, Australia or the U.S. or Europe. They are connected in a broader network and they're financing, they're recruiting, they're organizing together to commit acts of violence against innocent individuals. 
you've uh, you've bundled a, a range of interesting issues in 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 that last response, which probably need to be teased out. What do we know? And if we take the the most recent report you, you your organisation has put out, uh, Molly, which is the special report on the Atom Waffen Division, uh, it 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 is interesting to hear that the this particular network, um, fluid though it may be, uh, is borrowing directly from the way in which uh, jihadists have been operating for a very long time. Um, what does that say about the capacity of organisations in, or illicit networks rather, to learn from others? Indeed, uh, it's a worrying trend when extremists start to learn from each other. And and but it, you know why reinvent the wheel uh, when when you can already do something that evidently works? And I think just to hone on in on this point for the audience in how similar I think people like to think that you put Salafi jihadists on one end of the spectrum and then you put right wing extremists or white supremacists on the other end of the spectrum and. They're really, truly not that different in their worldview. Um, you know, Salafi jihadists, they fight for a religiously pure society while white supremacists fight for a racially pure society. Um, violence is the primary method to achieving their political go goals. Both um, movements are utilizing social media to recruit or finance or spread their hateful creed. Jihadis, they publish materium tapes while white supremacists and other right wings extremists publish long manifestos online um, and jihadis post beheading videos whilst white supremacists live stream their attacks like in in the awful Christchurch mosque shooting um, and bringing back bringing it back to your point here in the US this comparison even extends to the naming of groups uh, within this movement. So neo-Nazis here in America has adopted the name, the base for one of their organizations. And that's literally a translation from Arabic of Al-Qaeda. Um, and as we pointed out in, in our report, you know, they're borrowing manuals, they're even glorifying Osama bin Laden in some of their propaganda posters. And most importantly, you know, they're, they are organizing in cell-like structures, so they're harder to disrupt. Um, and a very worrying part of, of Autumn Waffen specifically is, you know, obviously their fascination with um, their accelerationist ideology that they're adhering to, which is basically that they want to bring about a holy race war uh, in order to collapse modern society. And this is quite similar to the playbook that Al-Qaeda and ISIS adhere to in the management of savagery, which is basically that you need to create, um, you use terrorism and uh, political violence to create pockets of chaos that you can then govern. And this is exactly what Autumn Waffen uh, and, and groups like that want to achieve. How do they go about recruiting people? What do they do? Because uh, it's all very well for somebody to have an idea. Right, if they're out there sitting on their own, um, it might be a bad idea, but they're only thinking it themselves. Okay, uh, so how do these guys start to get other people 
joining them? How does the network form? What have you observed? So it is interesting in the in the specific um, aspect of Autumn Waffen, which I think signifies a, a broader trend within the right wing extremist and white supremacy uh, transnational movement. So Autumn Waffen was born out of an online fascist forum called Iron March. That, so it was from the beginning wholly uh, organized online. However, um, you know, it doesn't take much to go from the online to the physical uh, space and, and starting to organize there. And, and in terms of recruitment, in order to achieve their goal that we've spoken about, um, the, the race war um, that they want to bring about, they focus their recruitment a lot on um, either former or active duty uh, military officers or other people with, with combat experience because they're very fascinated and they think it's very important to have paramilitary training and, and understand the tactics of guerrilla warfare and, and modern um, you know, urban warfare and so forth. So And then secondly, they're very much interested in recruiting as young as possible. Um, and so we see a very disturbing uh, evidence of, of white supremacists using gaming culture um, to to recruit young individuals. And I'm talking about our children. Um, one, one member uh, of an Autumn Waffen Division spinoff group or, or inspired group in the Baltic states for a Creek Division, he was 13 years old. It so there's a thirteen year old that is uh or that was plugging into this uh extreme right wing group. Yes. That seems that that seems bizarre. It's plausible, but it seems really, really bizarre and concerning. It is incredibly concerning because obviously if you are um younger, you're more impressionable. Uh, and if this is the reality we're living in today, especially taking into consideration the global pandemic we're in the midst of, which means that most of our children and, and, and young adolescents are wholly online, either for school or for social networking with their friends or for gaming, which seems very innocent, you know, but who are they talking to and who what are these people from across the world saying? You know, I'll, I'll take an example. Um, there's a there's a popular gaming community chat chat application called Discord, and it was leveraged by Autumn Waffen specifically and other white supremacists to communicate bomb making manuals, plot violence act at the Unite the Right rally where which killed one person, and they also uh, you know praised murders by other white supremacists. And before Discord shut down their communications, in this was in February of 2018, members of Autumn Waffen had exchanged more than 250,000 messages on this on this gaming uh, chat application. Um, and gaming has exploded significantly during COVID-19. Um, you know, over a one-week period in late March, uh, when most of the pandemic hit the Western world. 4.3 million video games were sold worldwide. Um, so the point is they have a very captive audience and we need to understand how the recruitment tactics of these groups are working now, which is you know targeting people with active um, or, or who have combat experience and 
targeting young people. And that's where we need to put our countermeasures and, and countering messaging efforts in. It's a, it, as you speak, it did resonate with that analogy between what jihadists had done over a great many years uh, starts to resonate uh, because there's a vulnerability out there at the moment with COVID. Uh, people don't know what's happening. Um, somebody comes along and starts to uh, offer them some kind of, well, let's loosely call it some kind of leadership. Mm. Um, or some kind of clear vision, some kind of explanation of the world uh, with which they can connect and then then engage. Um, it seems to me what jihadist uh, advocates had done and drawn various younger individuals into their into their net, if you like. I mean, you you don't get nineteen people jump, walking on planes and a nine eleven just happening overnight, right? Um, and this is the kind of thing you're warning about in the case of Adam Moffin Division particularly, aren't you? Absolutely. And, you know, again, bringing it back to the type of world we're living in today, um, the COVID-19 pandemic with the political, economic fallout and the human toll that this global pandemic has has, has put on us, this crisis you know, you say the bigger the crisis, the bigger the opportunities from extremists from, you know, all spectrum, uh, the whole spectrum to uh, recruit and radicalize. And I think that, you know, we're not even halfway through this pandemic yet. And when we look back, I think that we will see this as a watershed moment for the recruitment of, of white supremacists or other right wing extremists. Um, and and the, the scary part is that what happens in the online space can very easily manifest into physical attacks. And we've already seen that here in the United States with individuals attempting to pe- pe- perpetrate attacks from New York to Missouri to Los Angeles. And and um, uh, I'm, I worry that this is just the beginning. How do you get to, I mean, we, we've looked at, uh, Adam Moffin division uh, a bit, but there are other uh, extremist groups in the US and other extremist ideologies that tend to, uh, I guess we could say that tend to be exported elsewhere. I mean, Australia has seen its fair share of sovereign citizen movement types emerge from under rocks during the COVID-19 uh, COVID-19 pandemic where they think compliance with the laws of the state is a bit like walking into a a restaurant and, and picking and choosing stuff from the lunch buffet, right? Um, and you've got your own sovereign citizen types in the US. What are your observations about the way in which those guys have conducted themselves during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, um, absolutely. I think that, as we were saying in the beginning, um, right-wing extremism um, is, is is not a unified movement. And there, there are plenty of different ideologies or narratives that you can tap into to justify your own worldview. And COVID is, you know, providing uh, another layer to that. Um, and what 
what I think we're seeing here, which is something that, you know, sovereign citizens or or people who adhere to, you know, um, uh, anti-feminism or, or anti-LGBTQ or, or anti-Black Lives Matter um, ideology, what we're seeing here is also this um, disinformation terrorism nexus happening, which is, you know, essentially... Um, there, there are these conspiracy theories that are now providing evidence to this this broad movement, whatever you're believing in, whatever hateful creed um, you think justifies your worldview. Um, a lot of the disinformation surrounding COVID-19, whether it's anti-vax um, or, you know, QAnon or which is basically this conspiracy about um, there is this this elite cult, which is Satan worshiping and drinking the blood of our children. Uh, which to, to you and me sounds completely ludicrous, but it's now become this global movement of conspiracy theories. You know, this all provides evidence for for extremist hateful views and hateful creed, and this becomes a very dangerous and violent cocktail um, that could you know explode at every, any minute. And there's also something to be said about. Um, right-wing extremist ideologue in the United States and, and movements in the United States now being exported abroad, which you are seeing in, in Australia. And that's also a very dangerous element. And it what it means in theory is that, you know, we have the five eye countries um, and who have successfully cooperated on intelligence sharing um, and law enforcement mechanisms to combat Salafi jihadist terrorism. And this now this apparatus, which has been so masterfully crafted after 9/11 and the horrid attacks in Europe that followed, they this apparatus now also needs to focus on white supremacy, extremism, and other forms of racially and ethnically motivated violence to keep citizens safe. What are the other What are the other kinds of groups that you're seeing in the U.S. Uh, at the moment that are of concern to you because there might be things that you're seeing that we're not seeing down here, and and it it'll be useful to have an early warning, Molly. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, I I think, for example, that um, acceleration accelerationist white supremacy organizations like Autumn Waffen and the Base, who have these transnational networks, they're definitely interested in the in the um, New Zealand and Australian market, and I know that they've they've actively promoting um, white nationalists and and so forth from Australia. Just today, uh, you know, I looked at a post on an encrypted chat forum that says, you know, from Australia, our activists capture LGBTQ material, and it's a very derogatory photo, um, and you know, urging uh, followers to follow quote follow our comrades in the Pacific Patriots Front and linking to their um, encrypted chat forum. So Australia and New Zealand are definitely, you know, uh, desired grounds for the transnational network to take root. Um, and, you know, secondly, married again with with these conspiracy theories that are largely driven by dis- modern disinformation, um, you know, QAnon is now a global movement. Um, and, and that needs to be uh, considered and taken into account. And they're already here in the United States been, you know, 
individuals trying to perpetrate attacks in the name of QAnon uh, or the conspiracy, rather. Um, so, so that is another point. Um, it, it, you know, again, the radicalization of young and um, active duty uh, military or armed service members is also something that I think is a, is a trend that Australia and Australian law enforcement and intelligence should take into account. And last but not least, um, just like Salafi jihadists have traveled to um, conflicts in, you know, in Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s and the Balkans in the 90s and Iraq and Syria now most recently. And, and you have had Australians who've traveled over there to join ISIS, for example. But white supremacists are also doing the same. They are traveling to the conflict in eastern Ukraine. And by our latest account, you know, over 17,000 foreigners traveled over there. Uh, nine of those, at least nine of those were Australians. And that's a very worrisome trend in the sense that if you go there, you can gain active combat experience. You can further solidify your network. And when you return to your, your group at home, say in Australia, you can instruct them uh, in, 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 you know, knowledge transfer of making bombs or, or paramilitary tactics or, or whatnot. And you also have a lot of street cred because you got active combat experience. You went there and you were a fighter. Um, so it's important to track these individuals. And I know there's been reports about this in, in the Australian media about individuals who went over, but it's important to understand what they're doing today, who they're organizing with and, and what they're planning. It it actually paints paints a pretty bleak picture when when we talk about this. But what you're actually flagging to people in Australia is that a lot of thinking needs to happen, not just in law enforcement, not just in the intelligence community, but also you know, in the homes of families where you've got uh, people who are focused on gaming who might have some curious interests because how do you deal with that 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 counter-terrorism element if you like where you minimize or attempt to minimize the likelihood of people being radicalized by some of this stuff no i I mean this is this is a million dollar question right and and unfortunately there's no cookie cutter approach um because at this point, if there was, we would have solved the radicalization question, not only for the Salafi jihadists, but also for the white supremacists. But, yeah, you know, I think um, first and foremost, um, recognizing that this is not a domestic threat. Um, a lot of people like to label right wing extremists as a as domestic terrorism. Um, it, no, uh, it is a transnational movement. It's a transnational threat. And, you know, realizing that also helps you protect your family, help you protect yourself online against um, global narratives that feed into this violent and hateful ideology. And that also helps, you know, law enforcement and intelligence and academia and think tanks to understand how to study um, this threat or how to combat this threat if you're law enforcement and intelligence. And and for the law enforcement intelligence, it, it, it is about sharing intelligence uh, with our partners, uh, you know, across um, nations and states, 
Um, and for academia and think tanks, same thing, sharing best practices and, and, and talking about what's happening in your country. How's the movement manifesting there? And what are the connections that they're having to my country and so forth? So it, it sounds cliche, but I think awareness is key first and foremost. And then we, we can start implementing, uh, once we recognize the threat, we can start implementing countermeasures. One of the curious things I've noticed uh, in the COVID pandemic paralysis that people are in, in different parts of the world, is the way in which certain subcultures, the, the Quanon type um, subculture or the ideology and the other sort of sovereign citizen ideologies have sprung pretty quickly or have been adopted by people through social media, particularly Facebook is where I've noticed it. Um, to what extent do you think uh, organisations like Facebook and, and, and similar social media platforms have a responsibility to keep an eye on what's happening on their platforms and how these ideas are, are being exchanged? I think that social uh, media platforms um, and networking platforms absolutely bear a, a, an incredible responsibility in combating hate and violent uh, narratives on, on their platforms. And, um, you know, as you point to, there's been an exponential growth in, in you know, sovereign citizens, uh, militias organizing online on, say, Facebook. Same with QAnon groups. It's um, just increased explosively throughout the course of the pandemic. And although, you know, Facebook has um, taken measures to take down um, groups that are organizing violence or counter-protesting, in a violent manner and QAnon um, supporting groups, it happened a little bit too late. And this, uh, you know, becomes a questions of these algorithms. We are, we've seen over and over again, and we're very well aware that you can easily um, move from conspiracy theory or one sort of ideologue into a rabbit hole that quickly leads to radicalization thanks to the algorithms developed by, um, by these social media platforms that are intended for good and intended for pointing you in a direction of what you might be interested in. But if you are interested in um, something that's, that's fringe and maybe violent, um, it, it quickly leads down this rabbit hole of rapid radicalization that may take you from the online to the physical sphere very, very quickly. Um, and so it is and I think the key point here is that social media companies are profiting off these algorithms because that's how they sell advertising uh, spots to, to big companies. So it is up to them to, you know, figure out how to not profit off hate uh, and not, you know, um, use, uh, you know, prevent these algorithms from actually leading to violence. And I don't think that they've done enough and I don't think that they come far enough. Um, and I think that it's important uh, that they work with the government, that they work with other private sector or not-for-profit groups to understand how radicalization happens online and 
they're getting there, but they're they're nowhere near enough uh, efforts made. There's another thing I forgot to mention in my sort of analysis of social media platforms. I read a disturbing paper today, actually, in preparation for our chat uh, about the fact that uh, the warm and fuzzy TikTok, you know, the the platform that you know, we get Donald Trump impersonations on that people laugh at, is being used by extremist groups, you know, that sit to the right of Genghis Khan uh, to promote their own ideologies, to promote their own uh, imagery, to promote their own messaging. Um, it, it doesn't make TikTok look like a fun place, to be honest. No, and I've, I've read similar reports um, to you, and it, it's very disturbing because you think about um, – what is the you know average age group of, of individuals who are on this platform, TikTok? And it goes back to a point I made earlier when we were talking about you know specific tactics of recruitment of these organizations like Autumn Waffen and other white supremacist organizations. They want to target as young as possible. And um, TikTok, like gaming, it is a primary place for this. So again, um, Although no technology um, like social media networking is, is created, it, it's not inherently good or bad. It's, it's not created as an evil mechanism for terrorists to radicalize, but it's utilized by evil and rogue actors, na- states, and na- nation, uh, states and non-state actors alike. Um, and if you've created something, you also need to figure out how to make sure that, um, you know, it, your platform cannot be used to uh, coordinate or organize and conduct violent attacks against innocent civilians. The one thing that uh, keeps coming up in what we're saying is uh, the notion of risk management, the notion of awareness. In the case of Salafi jihadists, uh, there are things that make them look different to, for example, a predominantly white society. Uh, is the inability of people to see the threat of right-wing extremists um, something that comes from a, an inability to believe that you know, people who look like us, us in inverted commas, aren't capable of that kind of um, degree of violence or d- degree of hatred? Absolutely. The in-group, out-group mentality is obviously, um, you know, a part of the psychology behind understanding and realizing the extent of the threat here. but. As I pointed out, um, white supremacists or other right-wing extremists, they're not that different in their ideology and their tactics and their strategy from Salafi jihadists. And in my opinion, there is no difference between a white supremacist um, traveling from, say, Australia to go 
and fight with a ultra nationalist um uh, you know volunteer battalion in 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 the east eastern part of ukraine uh compared to an australian going and fighting with isis um you know uh they learn the same things they're um equally radicalized and they pose an equal threat when they return home um and so and i think that you know one thing that has scarred me especially um looking at these organizations another example is their hatred towards women you know um women have a very specific place uh, in this um you know distorted view of how society should look like that isn't that different from how a salafi jihadist views the female role you're supposed to be traditional modest serving the man and bearing children you know um and if you don't do that violence is justified rape is justified murder is justified uh and and you know um that really hit home for me it's a frightening prospect we've taken we've taken a listeners through some really really uh dark territory um but it's necessary to go there because uh, I think people need to be shaken out of their complacency. Uh, that's certainly what our securities agencies are doing here. Uh, Molly, uh, before we wrap the conversation up, there's a lot of work that uh, the Sufan Centre does in relation to analysis. You publish uh, various uh, in kind of intelligence brief, bottom line, bottom line up front briefs uh, on your website, but there's also research uh, research you've done, such as the material we've spoken about uh, on you know, white supremacy extremism uh, available. Where, where can people go and find this material? Absolutely. Um, for those who are interested in learning more and also, um, you know, I know that this conversation has been has been quite dark, but we also have solutions that are outlined and and you know policy recommendations that are outlined in our research, um, uh, that hopefully can help to alleviate th- this threat. Um, so, it, you can find it online on our website, thesufoncenter.org, um, and there you have research, intelligence briefings, special events. We also host webinars. Um, on these topics uh, with experts from 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 the Sufan Center, but also within our network um, more broadly, and um, it, it it is a great place uh, to you know uh, learn more about this threat and what what you can do to combat it, and uh, what law enforcement, intelligence, and policymakers can also do. Molly, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to someone who's across what is an important. Um, uh, yeah, topic in today in today's environment, particularly in Australia, with people looking at anti-vaxxers and others um, in the midst of COVID, who are who are running you know, running strange ideas up polls, hoping that they'd get more adherence in a time of stress. So thank you so much for making the time to to talk to me today. Thank you, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and for the listeners out there, uh, visit the Supan Centre website. Uh, they've got a d- detailed research on 
far-right extremism and, and other areas of interest. It's worth worth your effort. Stay safe and look after each other, and I'll be back again soon with another podcast.